Flow Source is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Picnicware, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and dead stock textiles. Picnicware strives for minimal waste, but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Find Picnicware on Instagram at Picnicware, and that's where, W-E-A-R, and at www.picnicware.com. No Flight Back Vintage, bringing fun new life to old things. Always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope-ass shit for dope-ass people. See more on Instagram at No Flight Back Vintage. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room. All while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at late to the party people. Vino Vintage, based just outside of L.A. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Shop Journal Vintage, specializing in upcycled, handmade, and vintage fashion for all genders. Owner Laura makes each piece by hand with love in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, with an emphasis on upcycled menswear, tie-dye, modern jewelry, cottagecore collars, and everything in between. Shop Journal makes pieces they love and hopes you will too. Getting dressed should always be fun. See more on Instagram at shop underscore journal. Old Flame Mending helps you keep your clothes intact through clothing repair, visible mending, and tailoring. Through extending the life of textiles, Old Flame Mending makes your pieces not only wearable and functional again, but also unique and beautiful. This mending duo is based in Pittsburgh, but they take mail-in mending orders from anywhere in the U.S. For more information, visit them at oldflamemending.com or follow them on Instagram at oldflamemending. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer, but Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. 
Wide-Eyed Vintage, a curator of truly covetable vintage from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Wide-Eyed Vintage encourages the experimental spirit of dressing up and will provide you with all the special pieces that will make your wardrobe truly unique. Dedicated to preserving the craftsmanship of clothes, Wide-Eyed Vintage only selects pieces that are well-made, pieces that have been proven to last beyond their lifetimes, so you too can enjoy them for more lifetimes to come. Find us on Instagram at wide underscore eyed underscore vintage. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at DylanPage.com or on Instagram at DylanPageLifeAndStyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Gentle Vibes, a vintage shop for the psychedelic mind, formerly inside Jeans in Hamtramck with a new Detroit location coming soon. See more on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that gets really stressed out about all the teas in the landfills right now. I'm your host, Amanda. Well, it's another exciting episode around here. I mean, you know, I'm like always excited. (laughs) The main event today is part one of my conversation about t-shirts with Jackie, a graphic tea designer. We'll be talking about the difference between direct-to-garment printing and screen printing, and she'll be explaining the print-on-demand industry and how that relates to licensing agreements. Also in this episode, we have not one, not two, but three hotline messages. So once again, I'm going to skip my special report about the nefarious origins of the anti-litter movement but I promise I'll be covering it as soon as possible. I mean, it's still trash month. There's so much trash to talk about. Before we get into all of the exciting content in this episode, I did want to give you a little update on the Uyghur people in China. I told you I'm going to try my hardest to talk about this in every single episode. So here's today's update. If you're new to the show, which I don't know why you're starting here, but if you are... (laughs) The Uyghurs are an ethnic group that has been rounded up into so-called re-education camps in China. Spoiler, there's no education going on there. And when they, quote, graduate from the re-education program, they're forced to work in fields harvesting cotton and in factories across the country. They're separated from their families. They're basically imprisoned even in the factory dorms. They're heavily watched. They have handlers. They have no freedom at all. In one of his last acts as Donald Trump's Secretary of State last week, Mike Pompeo declared that China's repression of Uyghurs was an act of, quote, genocide. Now, at first I was kind of like, ugh, about this because, well, Mike Pompeo is a war hawk, meaning a guy that loves to get into a war. 
He's also generally a jerk. And the Trump administration has been famously anti-China. They also have a tendency to focus on the wrong things when it comes to China, like tariffs, instead of the right things, you know, like human rights. But I do have to say that Antony Blinken, who was President Joe Biden's nominee to succeed Mike Pompeo, also said that he agreed. And I'm kind of excited. I'm trying not to get my hopes up too much, but this is the strongest language that we have heard about the imprisonment and forced labor of the Uyghurs yet. So I'm hoping that this is the start of something, but we will see. This month, the administration also declared a ban on imports of goods made with cotton or tomatoes from Xinjiang because of the alleged use of Uyghur forced labor to produce them. This is a huge move from an optics perspective and will hopefully bring more countries on board to pressuring China to stop this behavior. But I'm also going to say that the sort of chain of cotton, if you will, as it moves from field to fabric mill to factory to consumer is very complicated and very difficult to track. And, you know, as we've talked about here, well, as we talk about all the time, I guess, there's not that much transparency into the making of the things that we buy. So I don't have a lot of optimism that this will like magically remove cotton picked by Uyghurs from the supply chain. I think it's way too difficult. But like I said, it's a first step. And, you know, to be fair, everyone has to proceed deliberately and carefully when it comes to China. After all, enormous country, enormous economic and military power, also generally referred to as the factory of the world. So every country has some something tied up in China that they could lose. But you know what? I'm staying positive. I'm really heartened by these two moves. This is the biggest thing that's happened yet. It's shocking to say that th- this came out of the Trump administration, but once again, they like to fight with China. So let's see what Biden does next. All right. Let's thank the latest supporters on Patreon. You know, wouldn't it be really great if I had an air horn for this? (laughs) Just imagine it. (laughs) Just imagine the siren song of an air horn right now. (laughs) First up is Tara Giuliano, who was one of my assistant buyers slash favorite coworkers at my last job. Tara just got a new dog named Frank, and I'm so happy for her. Thanks, Tara. Next is Kate March, the one-woman show behind Undone by Kate. You might remember her as a previous guest. It seems like it was so long ago, but now that I think about it, it was the first interview that I recorded out here in Lancaster County, so it wasn't that long ago. If you haven't checked out any of her amazing reworked and upcycled designs, please go follow at Undone by Kate right now. I think you're going to like what you see. (laughs) Thank you so much, Kate. Then we have Claudia D'Souza Baptista, a.k.a. Bushwood Taylors. I'm excited because we have a tailor as a patron. This is a very big deal around here. Thank you so much for your support, Claudia. And if you listened to the blurbs before the episode, then you know that Dylan Page, an online clothing and lifestyle brand from St. Louis, Missouri, is now a Pegasus patron. Go check them out. They have some awesome jewelry and they carry one of my all-time favorite ethical, sustainable brands, Tone Lay. 
If you would like to support Clothes Horse via Patreon, you can find out more at patreon.com slash podcast, and I'll include that link in the show notes. Patreon's not your thing. You can also Venmo me at crystal underscore visions. And as always, you do not need to spend a dime to support Clothes Horse. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts. You can tell your friends. And most importantly, and this is the easiest one, you can just keep listening because I'm so glad to have your ears every week. Well, it's time to take some calls from the Clothes Horse Hotline. As you recall, we have three. It's a record. So let's get started with this one from Erin. Hi, Amanda. My name is Erin, and I was recently introduced to Clothes Horse. I'm following through all the episodes, and I'm currently on episode 35. So if you've addressed this since then, you can just please disregard. Um, also, I'm leaving a voicemail in an attempt to challenge myself to leave a coherent, coherent voicemail message, uh, which I don't think I've ever done in my life. So here it goes. Um, anyways, what are your thoughts on dress codes, specifically for work? Um, a little background about me. Uh, my career has been in libraries and working for one profit, mostly in New England. So clearly not very lucrative fields usually. Uh, my first job was in high school at my local public library. I think I was hired around 2001. Um, it had a very specific dress code, which kind of veered on the side of business casual, casual, but specifically stating that could wear capri pants, shorts, sneakers. Um, and I often remember people getting called out for not appearing. And looking back, I think most of the dress code violations I witnessed were not because staff were trying to be careless, I think it was like mostly part-time staff just trying to stretch their wardrobe because they didn't have a ton of like money or time to like, spend on new clothes. Um, and I often violated the dress code because my clothes were deemed too revealing, which annoys me now because like looking back, I was buying cheap clothes from like H&M and Rainbow and like later discovered they were too sheer. God forbid, showed the slightest like hint of cleavage because I happened to have boobs. Um, I also remember a specific staff member had a health condition or like the toughest time finding comfortable shoes that were like deemed appropriate. Um, my most recent jobs have not had a written dress code, um, which is sometimes still annoying because, like, I would then find out, oh, we only wear blue jeans on Fridays. Like, if someone I help would be, like, more offended by my jeans on a Tuesday rather than a Friday. Um, I've also, like, right now, I've, I've been looking at them at least almost a year now. Um, I've since pared down my wardrobe. I'm recovering from a compulsive shopping habit, and I only have items that I really like and are really comfortable in my closet right now. Um, I don't think I want to be, like, assaulted by a bunch of clothes every time I open, like, my tiny closet. Um, I ended up, um, since going to I ended up selling a bunch of the dressier stuff that I only wore to work. Like, I ended up selling it or consigning it or donating it. Um, you know, when I do return to work again and I'm being seen by people, like, I personally would really like there to be a large overlap between my work clothes um, and the stuff I would wear, like, on weekends. So, like, I'm not expecting to wear sweatpants to work, but I'd really like to wear my jeans and cute walking sneakers. Um like, I imagine there's a lot of people that feel the same way, and there's going to be like a dress code reckoning as people return to work post-pandemic. Um, I've also viewed dress codes as kind of a classist way to indicate that someone is trustworthy and competent because they can afford to dress a certain way. And don't get me started on, like, all these job interviews where I was, like, expected to wear shoes. Like, so many times I'd buy something cheap at H&M and, like, cheap, like, heels just to make it through a job interview, and then eventually I would just, like, donate it at Goodwill because I don't like wearing that stuff. Um and also, don't, like, get me started about how, like, dress codes can be used to police women's bodies, be super racist, like, all that stuff. So, what do you think about dress codes? Do you think they're on their way out? Do you think they're going to get more casual? I'm um, just curious if you're somebody who's worked in the industry um, and, you know, have our friends with people. Um, do you think brands will, like, take advantage of people's post-pandemic desire to, like, ugh, return to normal and push more businessy stuff and, like, offices will follow because we all want to get dressed up again? Um I will say that I think, like, dressing more formally 
in like well made suits and like well made business clothes as a group to like own less or own better. Um, but obviously there's definitely a barrier for not making a ton of money. Um, but I do think like, you know, I was watching Mad Men and I think these people had really small work wardrobes that I think they wore them out and wore them um, constantly. But um, anyway, I my, personally, I'd rather just wear my weekend clothes that look nice. So what do you think? Um, anyway, I love the podcast. I'm going to be kind of sad when I'm all caught up. <laughs> Um, but I know you put a lot of work into this, so um, thanks again um, for giving me something to do as I, like, try to stop buying shit, even if it's secondhand. Thanks again, and um, I think I did pretty well with this voicemail. <laughs> All right, bye. Well, first off, I just have to say that you did a really good job on the voicemail, Aaron. Aaron and I talked about this a little bit in the Facebook group, you know, clothes horsing around after her voicemail, and uh, we both agreed that calling someone on the phone is kind of one of our greatest phobias. And it felt good for me to know that there was someone else who shared that. And I would love to hear if any of the rest of you have that problem. Like ordering dinner, like takeout, it, I'm like sweating when I have to do it. I'm so anxious about it. Like my hands are sweating, my phone's sliding out of my hand. This is a problem I have had my whole life and I keep waiting for it to get better. And I think it's getting worse because I can do more and more stuff online or via email and I don't have to talk to someone at all. It's kind of an introvert's dream, this new world we live in. (laughs) Anyway, let's talk about Aaron's message. As you probably guessed, I have so many thoughts about dress codes that it's almost hard to know where to begin. Fortunately, Aaron did a really great job of calling out my primary issues with dress codes. You know, they're classist in origin. And by now, you know how much I hate anything that feels remotely classist around here. Dress codes are often used to discriminate against black workers and students. And dress codes are often used both in schools and workplaces to police women's bodies. I would also say that dress codes are very ableist because the types of shoes and clothing dictated by these policies aren't great if you have mobility or health issues. Furthermore, nice professional clothes, you know what? They're expensive. And having to own two wardrobes, you know, one for the weekend and one for work, well, that means we just buy more stuff, which when you think about it, is a great way to sell more clothes. So all in all, dress codes kind of suck, I guess. But we're part of the problem too, because we as customers and clients and just people out in the world, we have our own internalized biases regarding professional dress. Tons of studies have proven this. We assume that a professor in a suit is more competent and experienced, so we pay better attention and take more notes. We prefer to see our doctors in a lab coat instead of, say, a peasant blouse. Although I will say that my doctor in Portland, she's a naturopath, she's a genius, always wearing a blouse, never wearing a lab coat. I loved it. It's not for everyone, though. (laughs) We respond to and respect a good uniform. We've just been programmed that way. Aaron also pointed out that in the mid-century, people didn't have a work and then post-work wardrobe. 
yeah, they had some weekend clothes, but on the weekdays, they wore the same thing all day. Like maybe women threw on an extra accessory and some lipstick to go to happy hour, but it wasn't like, oh, now I have to go change into my evening outfit to go out on a date or up in the club or whatever. And it goes without saying that people weren't buying a lot of one-off, very specific clothes like, oh, that's my brunch dress this is a lounge outfit, that's my date dress, you know, that kind of thing. As I was thinking about all of this, I realized more and more that not only have we all accepted and embraced this idea of very specific clothes for very specific uses and therefore needing to own a lot of clothes, we've also, even as workplace dress codes have gotten more relaxed, still looked at our work clothes as separate entities from our personal life clothing. Yes, of course that makes sense if you work at Starbucks and have to wear khakis to work and you hate them IRL. But I think it's weird for people who can mostly wear whatever they want to work, yet this still happens. And I've noticed that retailers and brands still like to push that separation between weekday and weekend clothing because, you know, it sells more clothing. I do wonder what will happen after the pandemic, after at least a year of a substantial portion of office workers working from home, wearing whatever they want, you know, at least from the waist down, and generally feeling more comfortable. I mean, Erin might be right that after the pandemic, people will be so excited to, quote, go back to normal that they may embrace office clothing more than ever. And of course, retailers are going to be stoked to sell it to them. It's really hard for me to say, but when you look back in time, you do see that office clothing and company dress codes have gotten more and more casual with each decade. With the exception of a few industries, most office workers don't wear a suit to work every day. They don't have to wear pantyhose and blouses and high heels and all of the things that we see on, say, Mad Men. Look at how people were dressing for work in that era. Go into an advertising office now. Well, okay, maybe not now. Go in 2019, you're going to see a very different look. I read this great article about dress codes in the Atlantic. It's called, After the Pandemic, the Office Dress Code Should Never Come Back. And I want to read this paragraph to you. As the norms we know now were developed, the people in power made them in accordance with their own preferences. You traditionally had men in the C-suite, and they had certain conceptions of how men and women should look. That's why there was so much concern about, can you wear skirts? Can you wear pants? Some of these rules are still enforced in workplaces that prize formalities, you know, like fine dining establishments, white shoe law firms, Congress, including guidelines about hosiery, makeup, and women's hairstyles. Doing away with these standards is a question not just of gender, but of class. You knew classism was going to come into this, right? The more comprehensive the expectations for presentation, the more resources required to meet them, and buying a closet full of workwear is a lot more expensive than just using what you already own. The article goes on to basically say, these clothes are so expensive, it becomes a gatekeeper of who can even work in that industry and succeed. Once again, classism within the workplace, it's it's like, it's everywhere, guys. 
It's everywhere. So this really reinforces everything Aaron and I are saying so far. But as I've mentioned, we've been dressing more and more casually over time. So I've been thinking about this, like, how did that happen? Like, yes, the people in the C-suite are still predominantly out-of-touch white males, but they're slowly getting younger or, this is a better way to put it, at least coming from a different generation as we see Gen Xers and the occasional millennial work their way into leadership. And they bring with them a totally different attitude about dress code. For one, they see the dress code show a lack of empathy on the part of the HR department. Like, shouldn't the HR department see that dress codes can be a financial burden for many employees, that it polices women's bodies, that it's racist and classist at its core, that these clothes can be a nightmare for those with mobility and health issues? As more and more HR departments try to say, hey, look, we're your friends. We're just here. We're working side by side. We're all buds. Come and be honest with us. Tell us what's going on. They're also realizing in order for that to feel authentic, they need to demonstrate that level of empathy for employees. That's one reason dress codes are loosening up. Furthermore, and this is happening very slowly, companies are realizing that employees can be trusted to dress, quote, appropriately without having a whole litany of rules thrown at them. Just like companies were forced to realize that, hey, people can work from home and, you know, still work. We can trust them to work without constant surveillance. What a crazy concept. (laughs) In the midst of all my reading on dress codes, I learned a fun fact. Are you ready to hear it? For me, it was definitely another thing to put in the you learn something new every day file. The concept of business casual was created, or how about we say adopted, by Levi's, that's right, the denim company, in the 90s as a way of marketing, guess what, their Dockers line of, you know, like khaki, chino kind of pants. How'd that happen? Well, In the early 90s, the apparel industry was performing very poorly. Levi's in particular was being hit really hard by this. So they were just kind of brainstorming ways to increase business. And they realized that more and more companies were allowing employees to have casual Friday, but it wasn't going very well. I thought this was really funny that they let people have that one day and things really went off the rails. Because employees were using this as an excuse to come to work looking really sloppy and ungroomed, like wearing sweatpants, not showering, not doing their hair, that kind of stuff. And it was causing a lot of frustration in some of these larger corporate environments. In 1992, Levi's genius marketing team crafted a guide to casual business wear, which was a pamphlet that showed professionals smartly dressed in Levi's products, specifically, here it comes, Dockers khakis. In the past, these Dockers had been primarily confined to the golf course. It wasn't something you would wear to work. But Levi's was like, hey, maybe Dockers and khaki pants as a whole are what Casual Friday is all about, the very essence of business casual. So the company, you know, put together this guide to casual business wear, and it sent the pamphlet to 25,000 HR departments across the United States. So here was Levi's plan. 
HR reps would hand out the guide to employees who would, who would see it and be like, oh, perhaps I should buy a pair of Dockers or some lady Dockers. I don't think they're called that. Dockerettes. They're probably just called Dockers. Anyway, at the same time, Levi's would have a special HR department hotline where companies could call and get advice on how to adjust the dress code to this more relaxed style. You're not going to believe this. Well, I guess you will because you know what Dockers are. It worked. Soon Levi's was advising thousands of companies all over the country like IBM and Aetna. In the summer of 1995, the leadership of Charles Schwab was, was getting really upset over the fact that its employees were totally abusing its new casual dress code policy, showing up to work in, quote, everything from sweatsuits to torn jeans. What a nightmare. <laughs> Charles Schwab distributed Levi's dress code guide to employees. And this is my favorite part. They would organize showings for the whole staff of an instructional video that Levi's had produced. I really need to see that video and you'll be the first to know when I come across it. So of course, this idea of business casual, of casual Friday dress codes, it turned into a huge marketing story and a massive moneymaker for Levi's, but other companies as well. I would love to hear what you think about dress codes. I have to say it gives me anxiety just thinking about it. Other than my time spent working at Starbucks and later proudly serving Starbucks coffee at Barnes & Noble, I've never had a true dress code. That's the great thing about working in the more like hipster area of fashion. But after Nasty Gal went under, I found myself interviewing with some more traditional companies and the work clothes thing was really stressing me out. What about you? How do you make it work? How has it changed for you during the pandemic? And what do you hope is next? Email me or call the hotline. I want to know where you are with dress codes. Okay, we have another call. And this one is from our friend, Gabriella Antonis. She's back to tell us more about the grocery delivery situation. Hi, Amanda and listeners. It's Gabriella Antonis. I just wanted to um, call in because Amanda and I were talking and she thought I should call back in to mention some more stuff about Instacart. But I wanted to start by just thanking you for explaining Prop 22 in case um, some listeners may have never heard of it because it really just is propaganda. And it worked because the people who voted for it just didn't want their, like, Lyft and Uber prices to go up. You know what I mean? They didn't want to have to pay an extra surcharge for their groceries because they didn't want it would cost more if, you know, they start having to pay everyone hazard pay, whether it's Uber, Lyft, Instacart, DoorDash, or Shipt, it would end up costing the customer more money. So that's why they didn't vote to make people employees. So that sucks. But the, like we were saying, it's a movement and it's not over. So we have to keep going and not give up hope because once we lose hope, we lose everything. So <laughs> what I wanted to say about Instacart is that Target is also on Instacart. I know you mentioned that it's on Shipt, and that's because they want you to go through Shipt when you're, if you're getting stuff from Target rather than Instacart because Shipt pays their employees less slash worse than Instacart. 
also with just the situation in general, not necessarily about Target, but that Instacart hired too many people. So that combined with the rating system they do, which is only one way, by the way, the customers can rate the workers, but the workers can't rate them, the customers back, which is unlike Uber and Lyft. Uber and Lyft is a two-way rating system. So the order options on Instacart have been more, like, poor and for less money, for more work, um, which is usually how it is on shipped. And that's what my inside source tells me. And then just furthermore, like, the closer you are to five stars, that's a perfect score with the rating system, the better the batches are and also the people with better ratings get to see the quote-unquote good batches first before everyone else with lower ratings than them. So if there's, like, a petty customer about the ratings that, like, takes it out on you because they didn't have the thing that they wanted and that, I mean, that sucks, too, because it's a pandemic, and the conditions of the store is not up to the Instacart shopper or delivery person. And whether it's someone who stays in the store and gets minimum wage because they don't have a car, that's just an in-store shopper, and then someone can deliver to you, or whether it's someone who shops and delivers the groceries for you, the Instacart worker is still risking exposing themselves to COVID-19 for the customer. And I just want to wrap it up by saying, in conclusion, don't be sad. I always have to remind myself that actually only 60% of the U.S. population voted in the 2020 presidential election. So that means only 30% of our population is brainwashed Nazi white supremacists and, you know, we outnumber them, so don't fret. And um, another good thing is that more people voted in this election than ever before. And the last time the turnout was this high was in 1828 for Andrew Jackson. And that's according to, I'm reading this article from Time magazine. And that's all. So thanks for all that you do. And have a great day. Bye. Well, first off, Gabriella is right. We are making progress. This election shows that. What we need to do is get more and more people to vote. We need to reach out to people who've been frequently disenfranchised from politics. I bet you have friends and family who still don't vote. I know I do. And we need to stay strong and positive. We need to take care of ourselves so we can stay strong and positive. Now let's talk about Gabriella's call a little bit more. She sent me some screenshots of different shopping trips available on Instacart. I'm probably using the wrong term there. I don't know what they're called. Let's just call them shopping trips. <laughs> I'm going to tell you they were not good. For example, one of the offers that she sent me was driving 45 minutes to pick up 24 items at a grocery store, then deliver them then drive 45 minutes home. So we're looking at, I don't know, two and a half, three hours of work there, depending on traffic and stuff and how busy the grocery store is. That would get the shopper $11 from Instacart plus theoretically a $7 tip. So maybe $18 for two and a half, three, three and a half hours of work. And don't forget gas and wear and tear on the car. 
putting your life at risk to go grocery shopping. It just isn't a good deal. It's not a living wage. I guess what I want to say is that while Instacart has made the pandemic safer for a lot of higher income people, it's just paid poverty wages to its shoppers and drivers who are actually bearing the brunt of the risk. Especially since Instacart is expecting about 40% or more of the employees' pay to come from tips without explicitly saying that to the customers. At least when we go to a restaurant, it's pretty well known that the majority of the wages of the servers and bartenders come from tips. So we tip appropriately, right? With Instacart, it's not pushed enough because they don't want customers to think delivery is too expensive when they tip well. And, you know, Instacart doesn't care if people tip. They're getting paid no matter what. I think that's really problematic. It's sort of like they're trying to offer the hottest deal to their customers to make it appealing. It's like a free shipping scam, if you will. I also just want to remind you that none of these workers have a guaranteed wage. They don't get benefits like healthcare and 401k, and they certainly don't get a paid vacation. I can guarantee everybody who works on the corporate level at Instacart gets all of those things. And there's probably like a ping pong table and free granola bars. It's just not right. I know many of you need to get your groceries delivered. So once again, don't be an asshole. Tip well and leave a good rating. These people are sacrificing their safety so that you can stay healthy. It's such a luxury. It's a luxury that is so valuable. It's almost impossible to assign a monetary value to it. So tip accordingly. This is a great segue into our next call from Clothes Horse All-Star, Meredith. And she has an important message for everyone. Hey, Amanda, it's Meredith. It's been a couple weeks. I hope you're doing great. Um, happy 2021. Um, I listened to the news today and didn't have a panic attack, so I think we're off to a great start. Uh, but there's been some things I've been thinking about that I figured I'd just call in and share, and hopefully this all makes sense. Um, the first being, I know you have been talking a lot the entire time on your podcast about classism, and it's made me think recently about how disconnected we all are from the process of manufacturing clothing, accessories, and whatnot. Um, I know it's been spoken about before how some people think that clothes are just made by machines and uh, and no humans. Um, and I think there's a lot of people that don't understand what a pattern is. Uh, they think it's the print on a shirt and not the actual building blocks of a garment. Um, I really feel like clothing, as far as the commodities that we consume as a society, is probably the most misunderstood or um, people are the most um, uneducated about. I, can, I can't tell you how to build a house, but I can tell you it involves a lot of people. It involves concrete and wood and all of that stuff. Um, I, I can think of what a car assembly line looks like in my head, but I don't think that the general population of America knows what goes into making clothes. And I think a big part of that feeds fast fashion and feeds 
stores like Walmart and Amazon and Target who do good things to bring fashion to people across a wide range of incomes. But this expectation of cheap clothing, I think, even further removes us from the actual process of making these goods. And while other commodities and businesses, much like construction and automotive, have become so modernized, highly technical-driven, technology-based driven, driven, um, clothing has not. There are a lot of wonderful advances, and, you know, people who just hear about things on a whim always are like, do you know about 3D pattern making and, like, all this stuff? I'm like, yeah, I know. But, like, the reality is that, in general, most of the clothes that you can find out in any store in the mall have been produced with very little technology. They aren't necessarily using... Uh, large automatic spreaders and automatic cutters. They probably haven't used 3D technology. A lot of clothing is still made in a very old school way. And perhaps the only technology that's involved is computerized pattern making. So it's very hands-on still. It requires so many steps. I don't think many people realize how many People are involved in sewing a T-shirt because of the way a sewing line operates and that you need different machines to take care of different parts of the garment. I mean, it's a very involved process, and a lot of people touch your T-shirt. And that's the other thing. I think there's been a lot of people that I know that work for brands that produce overseas, and they're just like – They can't believe that I'm at the factory and that our factory is open. And, yes, while it is very concerning that there is a pandemic going on and we have taken all the precautions necessary to keep everyone safe, and luckily everything's been okay thus far. We've been very, very lucky. Um, Regardless if you make clothes here or overseas, people are in a factory. So, While you might not be going to the office, while you might have the privilege to be able to work from home and do your job from home and not have to have your hands on everything, other people do. So if we weren't open, it'd be the same thing as if your factory overseas was like, hey, you know, we're just, we're completely closed. And, you know, obviously everyone needs to be taking this seriously, but do you want clothes or do you not want clothes? Like it's a, it's a really tough situation, but I think people need to realize how privileged you are if you do have that opportunity to work from home and you don't have to work in a factory. Like that's wonderful and ideal and amazing, but a lot of people aren't in that position, not only here in the United States, but all around the world. Um, and I think manufacturing should be considered a frontline worker because we're all still here pumping things out. Um, but it, it also ties back to us and the way that we look at the people who sew our clothes as less than. To me, I feel like our sewers should be paid the most out of everybody. I mean, they're the ones who are actually making the garments. Um, 
it's not a low-skilled position. You might be operating one machine all day long, but how many people could sit down at a machine and do that? Like, I cannot uh, count 10 people off the top of my head that I know that could sit down and operate an industrial machine and produce a product that was quality. <laughs> you know, like, I could sit down at that machine, and, yes, I'd kind of know what I was doing, but it'd probably look like shit. So... I think that's also part of the conversation is, like, it It always has been, um, you know, even back to the start of clothing manufacturing, ready to wear, it's always been a low-class position, a low-paid position, and that is just shitty. Like, it shouldn't have ever been that way, and, you know, the, the reason why they brought in people at such a discount is they were taking advantage of immigrants. And they were paying them crap, but they were giving them jobs. So it's still like that today. And I feel like that just needs to change. We really, if more people understood the skill level that's involved in producing volume uh, clothing production, I think people would start to rethink everything. So Perhaps we need to do a better job uh, educating the world and especially the American consumer on what it all takes to make something that you buy in the store. And I think if it was more in our face, then people would feel better about paying a little bit more. People would be a little bit more cautious about what they buy and when they buy it and how much they buy, you know, but it's that out of sight, out of mind thing. And, you know, I don't know how to change the world, but I feel like we have to start there. Um, I'm sure I have plenty of other thoughts on this, but I won't bore you any longer. Um, I hope you're doing well, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. Have a good one. All I can say here is yes, I agree with Meredith. While I was listening to her message, I did start to get kind of like tinfoil hat conspiracy theorist over here, which... I'm prone to zero. And I wondered, and this is just me thinking out loud a little bit. You tell me what you think. Maybe it's in the best interest of retailers and brands for us to not know how much work and skill goes into making clothes. Bear with me here. Because if we think it's super easy or done by machines, then clothes feel less valuable and more disposable. So we'll just keep buying more and more and more and throwing them out after a few wears. But if that's the case, then conversely, couldn't a retailer really share all the work and skill involved to really educate their customers about it and use that as a path toward making higher quality clothing, ethically made clothing that would cost more, but would be worn and treasured longer because the customers knew all the work that went into making them. Because, you know, making clothing is a craft. It's worth treasuring. I'm just putting that out there. I'd love to hear what all of you think. But yeah, this is the stuff I think about. (laughs) Also, I just want to piggyback here on Meredith's comments about COVID and factory workers. People still working in factories during COVID because yes, factories are still open all around the world so they can make things for us to buy. This has not changed at all. And yes, I'm sure many factories are doing their best to protect their workers with their limited means. But, and I know I've mentioned this in the past, but I want to bring it up again. 
In the era of COVID, the balance of power between factory and retailer is totally broken. The retailer has all the power because factories are desperate to stay in business. So the retailer dictates all of the terms. And right now, retailers are making clothes faster than ever because they don't want to place orders as far in advance just in case there's another shutdown or blow to their business. So they're placing orders just a few weeks in advance. Don't even get me started on all the air shipping that's happening right now. They're also demanding lower and lower prices. So the short time frame combined with the lower prices means that factories have to work around the clock to produce the order within this extremely tight timeline because if they are late, they risk a discount or just a straight up cancellation of an already produced order. They can't waste a dime on something that's not gonna be paid for. And I'll tell you on the buying side, it's an industry standard that the buyer can take a one to 2% discount per day a PO is late a PO being in order. So it's a week late, you're looking at at least a 10% discount there. This is not something that factories can lose. So what are factories doing? Well, it's all hands on deck to get this stuff done as fast as possible. So workers can't be socially distanced. They can't be staggered across several shifts. And this puts the workers more at risk, right, of being infected. Not only is this dangerous, I'm really worried that the balance of power will never be restored and retailers will continue to demand shorter and shorter timelines and lower and lower costs even after the pandemic. And I say that because I saw how the recession and the rise of fast fashion pushed prices lower and lower and lower year over year over year while simultaneously shortening the turnaround time on these orders. And it never went back to how it was long after the recession was over. Every year it was like, make it faster, commit less in advance, and get a lower cost. And that pressure was coming from the leadership side of every retailer. So you kind of, if you're on the buying side or in production or even design, you would have to work as hard as you could to break these records, these like things that had already been so difficult in the first place to achieve. I have a hard time imagining that like in a year when theoretically the world is, you know, fully operational again, that suddenly retailers are going to be like, okay, we're going to go back to how things were before, because I think they like getting stuff extra super fast for super cheap. It's It'll be interesting to see what happens there. I mean, maybe we'll all have just like destroyed the fast fashion industry by then and it won't matter anyway. <laughs> One can dream, right? I also just want to add here that I know for a fact that many retailers and brands are forcing their designers, buyers, and production teams to work in the office, even though all of these jobs could be carried out at home. And almost all of these places have the big open floor plan seating, meaning everybody's just sitting in one big room, which has been shown to spread COVID a lot faster. It's just another way in which companies demonstrate the complete and utter lack of trust for the employees. doesn't matter what level they're at. They don't trust any of them. You know, I think I'm feeling a new Venn diagram coming on where complete distrust of employees overlaps with focus on profits, and the overlapping section is appalling waste. 
If you have thoughts to share, a Venn diagram of your own, a question, a story, please call the Close Horse Hotline. It's fun. It's easy. It's just a voicemail. And if you get cut off, just call back and continue your message. All of today's calls were at least two messages that I merged together with the magic of technology. So call me. The hotline number is 717-925-7417. And I'll include that in the show notes. Now you're probably wondering why I'm talking about t-shirts during trash month. So let's dig into that. Well, each year, do you want to guess how many t-shirts you think are sold worldwide each year? Go ahead, say it out loud. I'll tell you the answer. It's two billion, billion with a B. And the production of one t-shirt requires about 700 gallons of water. I can't even do the math there. I don't think my calculator on my phone has enough space for all those zeros. We're talking about a lot of water being used to make t-shirts. And the cotton industry, which, you know, cotton's kind of the main ingredient in t-shirts, it uses 25% of the world's pesticides and herbicides. And yes, there's organic cotton, which is great because it doesn't use any pesticides, but it uses roughly double the amount of water. So turn that 700 gallons into 1,400. Some experts say that actually one t-shirt uses more than 2,000 gallons of water, and that's with traditional cotton. So the amount of water used to make t-shirts could be significantly more than I'm saying here. Whether it's 700 or 2,000, making a t-shirt is no small matter. Some Western countries, if you're listening to this podcast, chances are very high based on the analytics that I get for a podcast listening. You're probably in a Western country right now or from one. Western countries use an amount of cotton that would correspond, if you did the math, to more than 100 t-shirts per person in that country per year. So even the little babies, they're getting 100 t-shirts. Your grandma, 100 t-shirts. I mean, we are consuming so much cotton. And yes, we also wear jeans. We wear cotton underwear, all these things. But t-shirts are a big part of this. And that's because the bulk of the t-shirts being made worldwide are actually being bought and consumed by Western countries. It's like an epidemic of t-shirts. And I'm going to say, I'm just going to jump in here. I love a t-shirt. I have a ton of them upstairs in my closet. Dustin has exponentially more than me. I get it. I love a t-shirt. I understand why you do too. When you consider the billions of t-shirts sold each year, along with the fact that the average American throws away 70 pounds of clothing each year, well, you can only conclude that an awful lot of t-shirts are making their way to the landfill, and you would be correct. See, now you're seeing how this fits into Trash Month, right? Print-on-demand technology, which we'll be talking about today in my conversation with Jackie, has allowed companies and licensors to get even more graphic tees into the hands of customers a lot faster and with less financial risk on the manufacturing end. You'll understand why after you listen to our conversation. This has pushed the prices of tees lower and lower while creating more and more demand for more and more tees. 
it's kind of scary to me, especially as we talk about the really specific one-off sort of semi-disposable teas for family trips to Disneyland or bachelorette parties or even trade show giveaways. These teas consumed just as many resources in their creation as any other garment, but they may only be worn once or twice before being donated or thrown in the trash. And thrift stores are receiving more teas than they can sell. When these excess teas make their way overseas to secondhand clothing markets, they are also rejected by customers there because no one really wants your family reunion or 21st birthday t-shirt. So what happens? They end up in a landfill, dot, 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 overseas. I mean, when I think about all the feminist teas, election teas, MAGA teas, or even how Bernie Sanders just sold a line of merch with his photo from the inauguration on them, when I think about how fast the appeal of these things dies off, and then how these shirts end up in a landfill or at a thrift store or shredded to create insulation, I just get so bummed out, like so much water, so much cotton, so much work, all all gone to waste. Well, I realized that I probably just bummed out everyone else too. So first off, and I put this out there, I want to know what you do with your old t-shirts. Send me some tips, call the hotline, DM me, email me. What are you doing with all your extra t-shirts or t-shirts that you don't wear anymore? And I'll also end with this. Well, this isn't the end of the episode, but I'm going to get into the interview. The graphic tea industry actually allows a lot of artists to make a living. And I would say this is the silver lining of our obsession with graphic teas because it's hard to make a living as an artist. And Jackie, who I'm about to talk to, is one of those artists. So let's get to know her. Today, I'm being joined by Jackie, and I'm really excited about this. I mean, I know I'm excited about everything all the time, but after recording a whole series of episodes with Kim of the department about the hashtag girlboss era, which turned into a deep dive into all of those feminist tees, I really had graphic tees on the brain. And I was like, wow, I'd really love to do an episode about graphic tees. I wonder who I could reach out to. And then by some kind of magic, Jackie emailed me the same day. (laughs) It was like meant to be. (laughs) Um, So Jackie, why don't you introduce yourself? My name's Jackie and I am a graphic t-shirt designer for a licensed apparel company. I create designs for t-shirts. How did you get into that? Like when you were a kid, were you like, my dream is to grow up and become a t-shirt designer? It wasn't t-shirt design specifically, Um, (laughs) but I definitely had an interest in fashion design and um, style and character design. I was drawing clothes for as long as I could remember. And then when I was a teenager, I had dreams of going to fashion school and I actually did go to City College San Francisco with plans to get my associates in fashion design. But my second semester, I took a sewing class and was failing. So (laughs) I can't sew. I could draw, but I couldn't sew. And I had to withdraw because I didn't want to fail the class and kind of rethink my life. And that's how I switched (laughs) to graphic design. It's a tale as old as time, I feel like. (laughs) 
when you were in school, were you aware of like t-shirt designer as a job? I think somewhat. I knew of brands like um, Wild Fox. I was really into Wild Fox. And I mm-hmm. could tell that Me was too. something, you know, that people were actually doing as a career. Um, but I didn't really have interest in living in Los Angeles. So I was trying to figure <laughs> out how I could like make my own kind of wild fox company and not move to Los Angeles. Right, right. <laughs> so you didn't move to Los Angeles. What did you do next? Um, so after City College, I transferred to San Jose State. Um, and I got my BA in design, graphic design. And then I wanted to get the heck out of the Bay Area because it turns out I didn't like that place either. Um, (laughs) I grew up in Bakersfield, California, which is in the Central Valley. And when I was growing up there, I wanted nothing more than to leave and go to someplace urban and artsy and more liberal. But um, when I got to San Francisco, (laughs) I found out it was cold and crowded and Uh uh expensive. expensive. I didn't want to like, I was living with my grandma during college because I couldn't afford to go to school and work and live anywhere, um, which was great. But no, I wanted to go out on my own and be able to take care of myself. So I moved back to um, the North Central Valley to Chico, where I had met my boyfriend and just happened that there was this graphic t-shirt company there. So that's what you do now? Yes. Um, so I work for this company up in Northern California. What do you do? <laughs> you know, like, I mean, I know we were talking about this when we were sort of pre-gaming for it, where I was like, well, what do you do? And it was kind of hard to explain. <laughs> so what is, your, what is your day, what is like an average day like, I guess, for you as a tea designer? Uh, so what I do is mostly computer-based. I create... Um, it is hard to explain. <laughs> <laughs> it, I mean, I feel like when people would ask me, like, what does a buyer do? Like, what do you do? And I'd be like, oh, I mean, it's like really complicated because, you know, I'm emailing and I'm going to meetings and I'm looking at samples and I'm, you know, looking at math. So I, to- I totally get it. <laughs> so, okay. So you do you design most of this stuff like on a computer, right? And you're not really involved in the actual garments themselves, right? Because it's, and you can tell me if I'm wrong here, it seems like probably most of the stuff you design goes on to just a few different silhouettes all the time, right? Correct. So in particular, my job, I work for the e-commerce department of our company. Mm -hmm. We have two separate design teams. One is the traditional retail side and they work with a product development and a merchandising team and create more fashion kind of graphic designs Mm -hmm. and have a variety of silhouettes that are more trend board. Whereas e-com, we work on the print on demand model, which means we have blanks, blank t-shirts and blank other limited silhouettes like sweatshirts, hoodies Mm -hmm. um, that well, then when a customer orders a design, we'll only get printed then for that one-off design and shipped to them. That is so crazy. Like, what's the turnaround time on something like that? Um, I, th- I know it can be slow depending on the volume. So mm-hmm. probably two to four weeks. These are also – and this is for people who maybe aren't super into T-shirts or, like, haven't had to buy them for a living or are a T-shirt nerd like my husband – there are different ways of making t-shirts. One is screen printing, which is like 
you know, the old fashioned way, if you will, Mm -hmm. where a garment will pass through several screens where ink is sort of like layered over the screen, depending on which section of the graphic that is kind of, I'm not doing a good job of explaining this at all, but then there's this other sort of newer approach that allows, you know, someone like Jackie's employer to print these t-shirts on the, on demand, which is direct garment printing, which you can tell me if I'm wrong here, but isn't that computerized? Yeah, it's computerized. We have our own in-house computer system that kind of sends the art to the machine. And they're basically just giant inkjet printers that can print on a t-shirt. That's how I would explain them. Yeah, I think that's a great way to describe it. And so the whole shirt gets printed at once. Whereas if you screen print a tee, in general, you tend to print a ton at one time because you have to cut all of these individual screens for sort of like each layer of the graphic. And the screen printing machines are enormous Mm -hmm. where a t-shirt will pass like is sort of in a circle from screen to screen to screen to screen until every layer has been printed on it. And it also can be a little bit more error prone, like, oh, is something going on with the ink flow? Was the screen dirty? Was the t-shirt not placed on the screen printing machine exactly perfectly? Like that's how you get sideways prints or bleed and all kinds of other stuff. So it's like expensive, time consuming, and you have to print a ton of stuff all at once. Whereas, uh, this like direct to garment is is just like using a printer. You can print one, you can print a thousand. And so it allows you to behave a lot more like reactively, I guess, you know? Yeah. And we do the screen printing as well. So I've seen these machines you're talking about and we'll do um, special projects with those. We do sort of mm-hmm. community-based projects where we print t-shirts for them. The downside there too is you're limited on like how many colors you can use. That's not a concern with the print-on-demand model with the direct-to-garment printers? I'm trying to recall. I think it has to be less than 10 colors to do a screen. It's like an enormous machine. It's so crazy to see it in action, but it's slow. It's very slow. Yeah, and it's very like um, hands-on, I think. I think the screen printers are a lot more meticulous. Yes. It's like an art for sure and a craft, whereas the direct-to-garment literally is a printer. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And like a printer, it can make great prints. It's just when you have such high volume and you have these things going all day, all night, you're going to get the streaks and basically the sort of quality you would see running a regular paper printer. (laughs) You start to run out of ink or things do get off. Yeah. That's so fascinating to me. I mean, have you, so have you visited the facility where the shirts get printed? Yeah. We have our own warehouse. Um, right next to the office where we print all of our print-on-demand t-shirts for Mm e-commerce. And I haven't spent a whole lot of time in there, but I have been in there. Yeah, it's so fascinating to me. And I don't know how much you can answer, but I imagine that someone has to be there sort of managing each shirt to know what's going to be on it, right? To pull up the file or do they get grouped together? It's so fascinating. Yeah, that's correct. Um, But I... I don't know how hands-on they are. Oh, really? It's just like totally automated? I mean, that would be really cool too, actually. That's like futuristic. I know there's somebody who has to check the shirts because they have to make sure that the order is matching the print. And um, like if there's a front and back hit, they have to make sure that that's accounted for. Um, But I think they're just kind of putting it through, looking at the computer screen, seeing the end product, and then putting it aside to go to the shipping department. 
I don't know why I was surprised to hear this because, of course, it makes sense. And you were saying that, like, the print-on-demand business is massive, especially over the last few years. And you said that a big part mm-hmm. of this was licensed sort of characters and properties. Um, do you want to talk about that a little bit more? Sure. Um, so my company has always worked with licensors. So that's going to be kind of entertainment companies that we partner with. This is somebody like Disney or WB or um, Disney owns most of them. Universal. <laughs> different ones. I know. It's all kind of different <laughs> company now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we have like all their Marvel, Star Wars, etc. So we kind of got started. My company has been around since um, 94 and started getting into that on the retail side. But e-commerce is kind of a safe way for us to start relationships with new partners. It allows, um, because we're not doing the high volume and we're not so reliant on buyers buying into our product the way retail is, we can kind of test the waters and see how a licensor product will do. So it's kind of an appealing um, business model for these partners. It makes sense because it's zero risk for them, really. Mm -hmm. It's like the risk I guess they take is like, what if you make all of their designs and then like put bad words on them or something. I don't even know. They would catch that beforehand. So it's kind of zero risk. I guess really the worst thing that happens is that no one buys the shirts. Right. Or there's things that go through like typos. Um, that's <laughs> oh, really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> we actually, so one of the business partners we, um, buyers, I should say, we do business with is Amazon. And they've started this uh, print-on-demand tea club, which actually Amazon prints, but it's our designs that we supply them and it's for specific licensed properties. So it's one of those subscription-based models where you just buy into it and you get a free t-shirt every month, but you don't know what it's going to be, which people are angry about because they'll get a design they didn't actually want, which I think is kind of funny and they'll complain about it. But we had to type on one of those shirts and because it's kind of a little bit different than our normal business model, a lot of those went out and it was a huge deal and the fans were angry <laughs> that they had this typo on their shirt that they paid for. Investor. But now it's like a limited edition collector's item probably. <laughs> sure. I'll think about that later. <laughs> That's so interesting to me and like – at first, I was surprised when you told me this, but now, of course, of course, Amazon <laughs> is printing their own T-shirts. Oh, yeah. They have um, – so we started with them with their own um, – they call it Merch by Amazon. It's pretty much anyone can join, but mm-hmm. we started doing that program with them with the licensed product, which you know, a lot of people looking at Amazon will probably think that's a bootleg, which it's not, which is weird. <laughs> <laughs> Because there are a lot of those too, for sure. Yes. Amazon, of course, is kind of like devouring all these different industries. And I've been in meetings for years where it's like there is so much fear of Amazon because they've been Mm -hmm. chipping away at like the apparel industry kind of, you know, like really stealing a lot of different business like from department stores and from like – mall brands. And now I see like with t-shirts, I mean, this is something that probably most people aren't even thinking about, but that, that could affect the business of say Hot Topic who, right? like, we'll talk about this in a bit, but graphic tees for Hot Topic are like 
their bread and butter. You might think that it's all about like, I don't know, uh, body jewelry and manic panic, but in fact, it's t-shirts. <laughs> it's kind of, it's kind of crazy, but I mean, it, I think that that is just so interesting. Like it's like another way that Amazon is growing and growing that most people aren't thinking about. Yeah. And it's actually kind of scary for us too, because we're basically a middleman. We're the art mm-hmm. designers and the product producers for these licensors that are then selling to the buyers like Hot Topic. But what's happening is certain licensors are kind of skipping us and just going straight to Amazon, which is a problem for us. Yeah. I mean, I could see someday Amazon being like, hey, Disney, let's just do this just us. You know, like that's mm-hmm. that's really scary. And I think like industry-wide, that's been a lot of concern. Even when Amazon bought ShopBop, there was a lot of fear that the brands that sold to ShopBop would gradually enter in exclusive partnerships with Amazon and then no one would be able to buy them anymore. And like for a place like say Revolve, that would be really problematic because Revolve like relies on these brands like, or, you know, a lot of department stores like Nordstrom. And I was, I was always like, yeah, I just don't know if people want to buy fancy clothes from Amazon. It's like not the same experience, but with a graphic tee, what's the difference of buying it at Hot Topic or Amazon. Like there isn't. No, especially considering it all comes from our I, warehouse. I know. Once again, or, it's like, what? <laughs> I guess the flip side to this is when one of the licensed partners goes straight through Amazon, they're not using an artist. So they're not really getting a unique product because that's why they would use a company like ours is mm-hmm. we hire artists and we produce hopefully quality artwork that would be different from our competing companies that would elevate a license. Totally, totally. And hopefully everyone is hearing that, uh, that another thing that Amazon could sort of hurt is the ability of different artists to make a livelihood, a living, you know, because Mm -hmm. they could bring that in house. And then I don't know, like robots would design the t-shirts now. (laughs) Love that idea. (laughs) I think people think that's what happens anyway, because I know. I think they do. And when you were telling me that the company that employs you has more than 600 licenses, mm-hmm. I was like, you must just design t-shirts from morning until night every day. <laughs> well, our biggest problem is kind of, we have 600 individual titles, but some of them are kind of seen as more urgent than others. Mm-hmm. That makes yeah. sense. That makes sense. And so we're, we're constantly struggling to stay up with these new demands and both the buyers and the licensors will ask things from us and they're all different to work with. Yeah, I'm I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. I mean, I think some people are probably a little chiller about their expectations yeah, yeah. than others. <laughs> so your company prints the stuff, but they don't make the t-shirts, right? They buy like the blanks, if you will. That's what they're called. They don't make right. the blanks. They're buying them from somewhere else. Correct? Correct. Correct. And where do you usually get those? So we work with brands like uh, there's this company called LAT Apparel, um, Tooltex, and this we kind of source different colors and um, prices from these different places. Fruit of the Loom is another one. Classic. Yeah. <laughs> Which if somebody sees like a licensed product with a Fruit of the Loom tag, that'll make them think it's bootleg, but 
Oh my gosh, I know. And I would say like this probably sounds unusual, but this is actually really, really common. Uh, a lot of the places I've worked where we even made our own branded graphic tees, mm-hmm. we would be buying blanks off the shelf from all of the places you just mentioned, maybe alternative apparel, maybe back in the day, American apparel, um, Bella canvas. They're like the nicer one. Yes. Yeah. They're nicer ones. So I've definitely <laughs> bought a lot of Bella canvas blanks in my life, but what we would do, which is what a lot of companies do is, you know, we, we'd have them shipped to the screen printing facility they would cut out those sew-in tags and then print mm-hmm. inside our branding. So often, I mean, not always, there are exceptions to everything. If you buy a graphic tee that has the interior label in the back there printed rather than sewn in, that was probably a blank from someone else. Yeah. We do that. Yeah, I'm, su- I'm sure. To sew a new label in is like so labor intensive and costly, whereas you can snip it out and print it for like a couple pennies. And uh, I even, you know, even huge, huge companies do this. Like I bought a Agritsuko tea from Sanrio and mm-hmm. I got it and it was the same thing. And I was like, huh, this feels like a Hanes beefy tea blank to me. You know what I mean? <laughs> like I know. <laughs> so this is very, very common practice. Let's talk about this was something we were we were both like. This is like the scourge of t-shirts. <laughs> These like, I don't know what I, I don't know what to call them. They're like one use t-shirts. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like birthdays, holidays, bachelorette parties, um, weddings, all this stuff. You mm-hmm. said that this is actually a big part of the business. Oh yeah. So Because we have this print-on-demand model where there's little to no risk, we can do kind of these very niche, one-off kind of t-shirts, which started because of Etsy and all those other kind of like Redbubble, Cafe Press, Tee Public. Those places had people making such shirts. It would be like, um, the one I always think of are those birthday tees where it calls out a specific year. So like, it's my sixth birthday. Mm-hmm, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So we saw like those do really well, but they were bootlegs. So we basically told the licensor we could do that same thing, but with their character, with their license. Um, so Amazon really drives that as well too. That but it bums me out so much. It does. <laughs> They're <laughs> I, it's probably my least favorite part of the job. Yeah. These teas because it's just, there are times I get to make really cool art pieces and these are not it usually. <laughs> <laughs> and they're just so like, their expiration date is so near in, in terms of right. like their usefulness. I, I mean, I would love to see there be a, a moment where suddenly it's like a hip thing to wear some it's my sixth birthday t-shirt that you found at the thrift store. Should we all start doing that? Maybe we should. Because there's going to be a ton of them. Like, I can't believe when I go to a thrift store, like, how much real estate t-shirts continue to take up. Like, it's like it grows and grows with every year. And at first I thought it was because of all of the, like, whimsical graphic tees of the early aughts, like, getting lucky in Kentucky and that kind of stuff. Oh, so Ohio folded a ton of those or like everybody loves an Irish girl. It was a real era for graphic <laughs> tees. And I thought that that was probably 
the driver, but then I would start like looking through these because I just need to know. And it's mostly just super random one-off t-shirts for events or like birthdays or man. I mean, if you've ever been to Disney World or Disneyland, you see the whole families with their matching t-shirts that they definitely got printed just for that day. And the first time I really noticed that on a widespread level, I got in the car on the way home and went on Etsy and I was like, oh, that's where they get them. Because I was imagining all these like moms and dads and grandmas and aunts sitting down and like designing a tea just for their trip to Disneyland and then take it off to the printers. But in fact, no, there are plenty of people out there who are very happy to sell you your single use Disneyland family t-shirt. Oh yeah. And we do like specific, we do the family stuff as well because that's big market and it'll be like very specific Christmas dad related tea or Christmas aunt. And they just, you want to try and get as many of those types of ideas out. It's this push to have more quantity because you're selling less of each design. So you want these one-offs in greater quantity. I mean, based on that, like how many t-shirts do you think you design in a week? Um, Me personally, I probably design – I actually do a lot of other things too, so I don't always have time for design, but – probably like 10 to 20 individual t-shirts but I'm one person in a team of I think we're up to 12 artists on my team and then there's the retail side doing their own art oh my gosh I mean it would seem to me and I could be wrong that your side probably has to design twice as many because there's only so many styles that are going to be bought on the retail side whereas on your side it's like it's like you were saying it's quantity over quality and you have like this infinite shelf space sort of for all the designs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Um, you also said that you have to – you do a lot of these like Christmas ugly sweater inspired <laughs> graphics. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> With like fake intarsia. Like they're supposed to sort of look like a sweater but they're not. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's an illustrator file. <laughs> <laughs> What a life we live, guys. What a time to be alive when if you don't like the itchiness of a Christmas sweater, don't worry. There's a t-shirt for you. <laughs> and it won't be so directed garment kind of has a limited print space too. So when we do these ugly sweaters, they kind of have a max area and we're trying to max them out as much as we can, but it's basically just a big rectangle. <laughs> it is. I see these all the time and they make me laugh so hard. They're like so unconvincing or like when I were talking before about you know, like to get like a distressed tee, which is, you know, a common mm-hmm. thing now for a t-shirt to have like a really vintage broken down vibe. It might even have holes and stuff in it. It's really expensive actually to manufacture that because you have to make the tee, you have to wash it down and do any shredding and then print on it and probably wash it again. And every wash costs a lot of money, right? So the way lower end t-shirt companies have gotten around this is to like make a fake distressed screen. (laughs) And I love when you see one of these t-shirts that where the screen is fake distressed, but then the rest of the T, because it's only limited to that rectangle, is like super crisp (laughs) and brand new. (laughs) 
it's just, it's like so fascinating to me. So I will say when you see a graphic tee that is like distressed like that and it's like 60, 70, $80, there is a reason why because it is getting touched an awful lot. Do we need to be buying pre-distressed t-shirts? I'll let you think about that on your own. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, think about it on yourself. You decide. You decide for yourself. So or keep the shirt a really long time. And, yeah, and just, yeah, exactly. That's actually all the really cool vintage tees. That's how they got distressed. Yeah, my oldest graphic T-shirt I've had since um, it was twelve. Mm-hmm. Wow. I still have it. It's Ramon's T-shirt. It's very like I'm very like emotionally attached to certain <laughs> objects, so I keep everything. But. Yeah. <laughs> It's got that like that neckline distress that I've seen expensive tees have, like Wild Fox. Oh yeah, like, oh, it looks so good. Yeah, and that's expensive to do that kind of treatment. Like mm-hmm. sometimes there's like actual razor blades and rocks and all kinds of other crazy stuff involved. Acids. It's kind of it's kind of funny the lengths will go to fake oldness. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so you're designing tons of tees all the time. So let's just talk about that a little bit. Like when you work with licensors, do they come to you and they're like, hey, just like do whatever you want? Or do they have do they have stuff ready to go? Because it's not like I'm just bringing up Tinkerbell randomly. I don't know why. I keep thinking of Tinkerbell this whole time we're talking, which is like not a character I've thought of for a really long time. But like they wouldn't be like, just go ahead and draw your own Tinkerbell. Like they probably for a character like that, any character out there, if it was like Rick and Morty or whatever, they already have that and you're not supposed to redraw that, right? Sometimes, yes. Um, Like I said before, a lot of licensors are different to work with. Somebody like Disney with Tinkerbell, they are open to stylistic interpretations that we would do in-house, but they would still – they every design gets reviewed by the licensor, and they would still look over that original piece of art and come back with feedback. And sometimes if it's, like, not stylized enough, they'll say, oh, this isn't on model. That's the word they use, um, meaning the character looks the way it looks normally for their assets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but every licensor, more or less, will provide assets, which are usually like Illustrator files, Photoshop files, um, straight images. It's always very different what they provide or don't provide. Um, and we can use these resources to compose our own designs. Sometimes mm-hmm. they'll also give us what they call like badges, which are kind of pre-made designs and we will take those and just kind of put them on a t-shirt too because (laughs) they're giving these badges to all of our competitors and we want to make sure we also have our foot in that door. Right. I mean, that makes sense to me. And I think that there are certain incarnations of certain characters or shows that are so iconic that if you don't have them, it almost makes your line look like it's not legit. Yeah. There's so much fear about the, out there about bootlegs and bootlegs are rampant that you kind of have to like protect yourself by, you know, having that overlap, I guess. Mm-hmm. And there's also a lot of um, brand image sort of things, depending on what the licensor wants us to do with their character or not. Um, Disney princesses, for example, we can't <laughs> say anything too negative, even if it's a quote from from the movie. That is fascinating to me 
that they have to always have like a positive message. I yeah. kind of love when you see like a bootleg of a Disney princess and she's wearing like <laughs> booty shorts and oh, like God. drunk or something. <laughs> There's a lot of them. I know. I know. That's obviously a bootleg. <laughs> yeah. But no, it's really hard to tell bootlegs from non-bootlegs, I feel. And I think there's also kind of this fan art market that feels more legitimate, but there's some gray areas there um, as far as I know when it comes to licensing. That's so interesting to me. You know, like Dustin and his friends are uh, like obsessed with bootleg banties, both Mm -hmm. in a good way and a bad way where he belongs to a group on Facebook that's like very – you have to be invited and they will make their own like really incredible bootleg teas for sale. I've bought a couple and they're always super cool. But they also are obsessed with tracking down people who are bootlegging and pretending they're not. And there's like Instagram accounts devoted to this. And he'll like share stuff with me and I'm like, how could you guys tell the difference at all? I mean it is – really, really challenging. And sometimes it comes down to like that, that sewing label. And I'm the one who's like, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. You guys don't understand. <laughs> right. <laughs> I guess legal lines is something we have to do. Sometimes with the whole like zone and label, we can't do one. And so the licensor will ask for a legal line to be added to the art. That's something like trademark, copyright. Oh, blah, 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 totally. I've seen that on things. For yeah, sure. So that's a way to tell if it's legitimate. So you also said that, you know, some licensors are easier to work with than others because they might have their own sort of guidelines around the t-shirt themselves. Licensors will often provide kind of do's and don'ts Mm -hmm. with their brands before ahead of time. As our licensors, we kind of have to test the waters and see what happens. (laughs) But uh, we're trying to make everybody happy. So we all kind of have to learn how each one works. National Geographic is interesting in particular because they're pushing us to have more eco-friendly product. This is kind of new. Basically, they're making it contractual that certain amount of the packaging has to be biodegradable kind of thing. I mean, that's pretty cool, yeah. actually. And I hope that catches yeah. on. I love that. I don't know the full behind the scenes, but if one licensor is pushing us to do that, I don't think it makes sense for us to only have that packaging for that one licensor. So then, you know, we have that packaging for all our licensors. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think it's it, it can be like a game changer for the whole industry. Yeah. I, I also like, it just occurred to me now that there are National Geographic tees. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and you did say that like pop culture is a big driver of all of this. Yeah. I mean, that's mostly what we do. And I think what makes graphic tees unique to kind of other aspects of the apparel industry is it's kind of universal. I feel like there's a graphic tee for anybody who would wear, wear a graphic tee and you don't necessarily have to be someone who's interested in fashion or mm-hmm. style. And it's a lot easier to purchase online because they're usually looser and it's less of a risk. Um, but the pop culture aspect, you know, I see graphic tees as something that people want to wear because they want to show the world what they're about and they want to communicate with others. So they do that by wearing a t-shirt from their favorite show kind of thing. I read this really interesting article sometime this year about how Hot Topic has been doing better than ever because Mm -hmm. they shifted their focus into pop culture, which everybody has a 
thing that they love. Uh, and, you know, if you search hot topic, if you search graphic tea, there's more than 100,000 search results, which is like, how can there even be that many teas? But, you know, there are so many different pop culture interests out there. And this article I read, I want to say it was in the New York Times. It was it was almost like heartwarming about how like the reporter went to a hot topic in a mall and it was literally filled with generations of people all mm. there buying their favorite pop culture stuff. Oh. I know. It was kind of I you know, it's like I also will say, not to go off on a total tangent about hot topic, <laughs> but I've noticed because it is one of those stores that if we happen to be in a mall, which does not happen very often and hasn't happened at all this year, but in the past, we would always go to Hot Topic just because it's like fun to go in there. And oh, yeah. Dustin and I were talking about how there's this like phenomenon of like this community that builds around like a local Hot Topic where teenagers come in there and just like hang out all day and they all <laughs> know each other and stuff. And I... I love that, you know, <laughs> but it is like their business model now is like, let's track down the hottest pop culture trends. It's not about style or fashion trends. It's about like, mm -hmm. what are people interested in consuming in terms of music, television, movies, cartoons, that kind of stuff. And I think that's probably what makes Hot Topic unique when you compare it to any other store in the mall that also sells clothes is like, it's not about fashion at all. Yeah, definitely. And Hot Topic is kind of, they're very forward on that sort of thing. And they've actually dictated to us what they want to see, which is kind of another way that we know what designs we're going to make, basically. God, that's, I think that's so fascinating. Yeah. And they were probably <laughs> one of our first partners with this switch to print on demand. They were like one of the first to really get on board with it and understand what it is. Because that's another thing is we have a hard time explaining what this whole print-on-demand thing is all about to both the buyers and the licensors sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm sure because it's it's still so new. And I think that also, I mean, that speaks to the fact that there's not a warehouse somewhere for Hot Topic where there are literally 100,000 <laughs> different teas. No, they are just being printed on demand. Yeah. And now I know um, our, I, I've looked on Hot Topic and I've seen kind of these shirts that look like print on demand, which you can usually tell because they won't be on model, but they're not ours because they know mm -hmm. we don't have that license and our blank doesn't look like that. So they're definitely partnering with a lot of different people to put those 100,000 tees on their Yeah. Website. I mean, that's a lot of t-shirts. <laughs> and it's like I, in general, most of the t-shirts I have are either like music related or like, you know, I have some Sanrio ones, but like I think of people like my sister who is way into all kinds of like anime and gaming culture. And she has like a t-shirt for all of that, you know? Oh, yeah. So it's like a really important part of her personal expression yeah. of like who she is, you know? Yeah. I think that's why graphic teasers are so popular and continue to be so popular is because it's a really easy way for people to express that about themselves. It's so interesting. Like I wish there were a way for people to express themselves without having to buy 100,000 graphic tees, but we're just not there yet. <laughs> um, and I also like, I look at it as like, I remember being like a weird outcast, like alternative kid in high school and how I was able to advertise that to the world in hopes of meeting other members of my, my, you know, yes. like group that I didn't know would be like to have a nose ring or dye my hair a weird color or wear thrift store clothes or like it was always about the band shirt. Mm -hmm. Like it had to be 
be a shirt for a band that was cool. And then other people would see you and know, and then maybe they would be your friend too. (laughs) No, I was the same way. And like, I mean, I got into like punk rock when I was 11. So this was 2004 and not a lot of other girls were into punk rock that I knew, but I was like, I'm going to wear this band tee and I'm going to find that other girl. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I literally remember like getting blank tees and just writing the band name on with a Sharpie in hopes of, you know, hoisting that flag to other like, you know, kindred spirits out there. (laughs) I did that with duct tape and a jacket once. It was fun. That sounds really good. Yeah. I mean, that is like, that's the thing. That is what these pop culture tees do for people. It's also like, I don't know. It's like an icebreaker because you can Mm -hmm. be like, oh, hey, you love Baby Yoda too? (laughs) So do I. (laughs) Oh, gosh, Baby Yoda. That's um, one of our biggest licenses right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you said you had um, some dark times with Baby Yoda. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm not personally a big fan of Baby Yoda, and I think a lot of that has to do with my job. But... (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I guess that's as good as reason as any. You know, it's like so weird because I feel like even if you had not, I mean, I definitely haven't seen any of the recent Star Wars stuff because I'm like a purist about all of that. Mm -hmm. But there was this moment where I could not be on the internet anywhere and not see a mention of Baby Yoda. And it seemed, you tell me if I'm wrong or not, it seemed very sudden. Yes. It was for us too. So we... We've been partnering with Star Wars for a really long time, and we knew about the show, and we were getting ahead of development for this show, but they did not tell us about this character until, like, a week before it aired. That and they didn't give us any assets. They gave us, like, watermark screenshots. And they told Weird. us... Do you think it was a last-minute ad? They were like, we need something <laughs> cute in here? I don't think so. I think... They must have just been really protecting it because they probably knew what a cash cow it was going to be. But <laughs> <laughs> And it was. <laughs> but it also seems strange because, you know, they gave us like screenshots and they asked us to make our own art. So we did. And we submitted them for approvals and then the show aired and they rejected them. So we couldn't actually oh. sell them. And people were like, where the heck is my baby Yoda t-shirt? as you do second half of the episode aired and so then they gave us these really awful screenshots they looked like i don't know old concept art basically and they wanted you know designs yesterday so we didn't spend a lot of time on those we just kind of made basically squares and then people were complaining this is so lazy i could do this kind of thing Oh, my God. Well, good luck. I think we've made about 100,000 <laughs> Baby Yoda shirts since then, though. It's been about a year. <laughs> wow. I mean, I still see people posting Baby Yoda yeah. stuff. Like, it hasn't no, gone away. No, the second season just aired. So we've kind of been knee-deep doing wow. that again. But it wasn't quite as bad as when it first aired. <laughs> it was so bad. We got so backed up with orders that I had to work in shipping that Christmas. And most of the artists did. Yeah. Fun. Yeah, that's fun. I like doing other things. But actually, it is kind of nice sometimes. I've had to do that in certain jobs too. Not because of Baby Yoda, but similar 
similar phenomenon. Also, <laughs> the whole like Baby Yoda thing is technically you're not supposed to say like from the licensor's perspective because that's not his name. But that's what everybody's searching. So now uh, they're kind of like easing up on it a little. No way. That is fascinating too. Wow. Yeah. I mean – there you go. You learn something new every day. So wait, what are you supposed to call him? Well, for a while he didn't have a name and you were just supposed to call him the child. And oh, then I guess he got a name recently. And so his name is Grogu. I haven't watched the <laughs> second season, but I know all this because of my job. <laughs> There's so much I know about that I've never seen like Fast and the Furious. <laughs> I had to oh research my God. That. <laughs> that's a lot of t-shirts too. And yeah. like that's the franchise that keeps giving. Like how many movies in are they now? Oh. Seven, eight? Something like that, plus a spinoff. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have a friend who really, really loves Fast and the Furious, the entire franchise. It's not really my jam, but there have been a few episodes of one of my favorite podcasts, How Did This Get Made, about it. And oh. they're always really, really funny. I, If you like bad movies or at least like hearing about m- bad movies, it is the most fun podcast ever. I think you told me about that, but with um, Space Jam, which is another oh, one. Yes, yes. They have their Space Jam. Episode to me is like legendary because, you know, we've talked about Space Jam teas on the pod before. And of course, Jackie and I had to talk about Space Jam again when we were prepping <laughs> for this. And uh, I have very specific memories of my mom dropping me off at the movie theater with my brother and like making me go see Space Jam with him. And I was pretty small. And I remember thinking like, this is a terrible movie. But my brother is like, this is the best movie of my life, right? Because he's younger than me. And uh, I had all my life seen people wearing Space Jam tees, speaking reverentially of Space Jam. And I thought, it must just be me. I must be the only person who thinks that movie is stupid. But then I listened to this episode and it was hilarious because they also read some like articles and reviews from that era about Space Jam. And it turned out, you know oh, what? All all critics in the world agreed it was a garbage movie and that <laughs> it was a very transparent commercial for Nike and Michael Jordan. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen it. Um, when that came out, I was pretty young and I pretty much didn't care about anything that involved sports. Oh, yeah. Me neither. <laughs> That's why it was extra painful to have to go see this movie with oh, my God. brother. And I feel like it... It also launched that era of uh, Looney Tunes graphic tees of the 90s. Like, I think that's why until 2000, you would see people wearing, like, huge Tweety Bird t-shirts or Taz mm-hmm. and being like, I identify with Taz, like that kind of stuff. It really, like, rejuvenated the Looney Tunes brand <laughs> for quite a while. Oh, well, yeah. And it's kind of back. I mean, there's one cyclical fashion that's kind of back to those kind of graphic tees. But there's also, I feel, this whole nostalgia market for people like your brother who saw it and loved it mm-hmm. and think back on it as this wonderful piece of ever. childhood. Yes, yes. And I don't know if you told me this or Dustin told me, but they're making a new version of Space Jam. Did you tell yeah, me this? I did yeah. tell you this. And he was like, oh, yeah, I heard about that. And I was like, why didn't anyone tell me, basically? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, I think this year, possibly. I know – the licensor was being like super um, possessive of the brand that we couldn't make any Space Jam tees. And we were kind of mad about it because, you know, Urban Outfitters wanted their Space Jam tees. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense. We're wait- I think that's because of the new movie coming out. I mean, Space Jam is 
the easiest movie to make during a pandemic because it's entirely <laughs> one person in front of a green screen. Like <laughs> that was the other thing. Like, you know, when you're a little kid, you don't know about green screens and to listen to someone break it down, how obvious and bad the green screening is. I was like, oh, okay. It's not just that Michael Jordan's a bad actor. <laughs> Nothing around him was real. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Anyway, great. Good to know that there's a Space Jam tea coming. But you said that it's it's like kind of really comet- competitive, like with Space Jam, for example, to get the license for these like emerging pop culture brands. Mm-hmm. Or not brands, but trends, I guess. What happens is there's certain stipulations of the contracts that the licensor will negotiate with us because they're also licensing out their brand to our competitors. So, for instance, there will be certain properties that we can only do um, – accessories for which is another little branch of our business or (laughs) we can't do youth for certain brands or we can only do juniors and not young men's kind of thing so Mm -hmm. that's kind of how they do it Jackie will be back on Wednesday for the second half of our conversation, where we'll be talking about, among other things, why are we all so obsessed with teas and why graphic teas feel so important to our identity. I know that sounds like a lofty statement, but you know it's true. In a world with like 9,000 problems, at least, it's really easy to be overwhelmed, and I've been there more often than not. That's why I think it's good to focus on one major issue for the year because the other problems will fall into line with that. Like working on one leads to working on more. So like my personal focus this year is going to be campaigning for workers' rights. So I'll probably be talking about workers' rights a lot this year, among other things. The way I look at it, lifting people out of poverty via a living wage and good work conditions will lead to positive impacts on the environment. If you're not struggling to exist every day, you have time to work on a more sustainable lifestyle and you have more energy to fight for the planet and its people. So I feel that workers' rights is a great step for me. I'm still going to be curbing my consumption, reducing the plastic in my house, making my clothes last, buying secondhand, all the things we talk about here, and more. But I'm also going to boycott any brand that treats their employees poorly, and that includes companies that laid off workers during the pandemic just to post a profit, silence their workers with foolish and unnecessary NDAs, companies that refuse to pay up, and companies that refuse to pay living wage. There's more and more and more. Basically, anytime I hear that someone had a really bad experience working somewhere, I'm like, cross that one off the list of someone who will ever get my money or cut them off that list, paste them on the asshole list. (laughs) I'm also going to write emails and letters to companies to push them to do better. And I'll share my journey with all of you along the way. So tell me, what's your focus going to be? Who wants to get in on workers' rights with me? I mean, there is power in numbers. If we work together, if we're all working for what's right, We can make a difference. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Of course, I always say that. And don't forget to tell your friends, your mom, your cousins. We haven't been getting enough cousins over here. (laughs) 
thank you to everyone who continues to share our content, recommend us on Instagram. I love seeing it. It makes me so happy. You can join in on all of the Close Horse Adventures on Instagram at Close Horse Podcast. A lot of stuff comes up. This week we were talking a lot about factory audits. You never know what's going to happen on the Close Horse Instagram. As a reminder, you can reach out to me anytime for the sources I use for the information I share here and on social media. I've got all the bookmarks and I'm ready and excited to share them. I'm also just going to ask everyone again, if you have a story about Etsy or something really important about your experiences selling on Etsy to share, please reach out to me. I'm hoping to write and research the script for the Etsy sode in the coming weeks. I need your stories to get it right. And don't forget, if you have a question, an episode idea, or a story to share, please reach out. You can call the hotline at 717-925-7417. There's also the old-fashioned way via email at amanda at closehorse.world. By the time you hear this episode, the Close Horse blog contributor info session will have already happened, but it's not too late to get involved, and it never will be if I have my way. If you're interested, please email me, and it's important that you email me, not DM me, at amanda at closehorse.world then I can forward all the information to you and you can catch up and get to work on your contribution. I'm specifically asking you to email versus DM because it's a lot easier for me to send the info to you that way. If you message me on Instagram, then I have to ask for your email, then I get it, then I have to open my email, copy your address over there, and then send the information to you that way. And honestly, there's a really great likelihood that I will forget to do that because whew, there's I have a lot going on right now, <laughs> not to brag or anything. <laughs> and you know what? I don't want you to miss out just because I can't remember anything for more than five minutes. I'm too busy jamming the stories of dockers and business casual in my brain. Nothing else sticks. Also, if you want to meet other Close Horse listeners, especially like, let me tell you, the people in this group, the Close Horsing Around Facebook group, they are the raddest people. You want to come and join the club, don't you? I'll share a link in the show notes. You don't want to miss this. If you need a new podcast, which let's face it, there's like barely any new TV anymore and it's getting pretty dark. (laughs) It's a great time to take on some more podcast listening, right? You can check out my other podcast, The Department, which I co-host with my friend Kim. And I feel like every episode is better than the one before, so you don't even need to start at the beginning. We're in the midst of a series about the 2000s. Some people like to call them the early aughts. You know, fun fact, in the early aughts, when people would say early aughts, it made me cringe. But then somewhere around 2015, I became comfortable with that term. (laughs) Anyway. The 2000s were both horrible and beautiful, tacky, yet inspiring, so you do not want to miss this content. (laughs) Thanks, as always, to Dustin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye!